listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan, here on this 27th day of January 2017. Welcome to episode 313 of The Corbett Report podcast, Demonetization and You. On November 8th of last year, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi made a dramatic live televised address to the Indian nation in which he announced that as of 12 midnight that very evening, the 500 and 1,000 rupee notes, the most common notes by value in the Indian economy, would no longer be legal tender. To break the grip of corruption and black money, we have decided that the 500 rupee and 1000 rupee currency notes presently in use will no longer be legal tender from midnight to night. Persons holding old notes of 500 or 1000 rupees can deposit these notes in their bank or post office account from 10th November till close of banking hour on 30th December 2016 without any limit. And just like that, all of those colorful pieces of paper in everyone's pocket that everyone uses for transactions on a daily basis were just that, colorful pieces of paper with no inherent value. Now, it's important to understand what this move means and what it doesn't mean, despite what some hyperbolic headlines might have you believe. This is not about the abolition of cash outright in the, in the Indian economy or anything quite so dramatic, but it is a dramatic move nonetheless. It's something known as demonetization, which might be a new word for you. If so, let's turn to Investopedia for the dictionary definition. Demonetization is the act of stripping a currency unit of its status as legal tender. Demonetization is necessary whenever there is a change of national currency. The old unit of currency must be retired and replaced with a new currency unit. And yes, exactly as is the case in the Indian uh, example, the old 500,000 rupee notes are being retired and new currency is being issued to take its place. In fact, that was part of the debacle of this launch of this new currency was that there was indeed new currency that was in the process of being printed to replace the currency that was being demonetized, but the Indian government had given a false signal to the printers that they would have more time to work on this until the end of the year, but suddenly it was being announced in November and they were caught off guard and this is just one of the many, many uh, bureaucratic snafus that accompanied this particular ro rollout. But as we will see in this episode of the podcast, it's by no means the worst aspect of this particular demonetization. The real question for us today is why? Why did, uh, uh, why did the leader of a nation suddenly get up and announce that these 500,000 rupee notes were suddenly no longer legal tender and you'd have to turn them in in order to get new, newly minted notes. Well, uh, the, uh, well, there are a number of reasons, some official, some unofficial. Uh, the most 
commonly cited and the one that uh, Narendra Modi explicitly stated at the very beginning of that clip, if you caught it, was black money. Black money is a term that is used in India to refer to essentially untaxed money, money that's circulating in the what we might call the black market, or at least markets that are not uh, in the purview of the Indian government. So this is money that is floating around out there, cash transactions in the informal economy, as it's often referred to, that can't be directly tracked. And I did talk a little bit about this and this as one of the reasons for this uh, this demonetization in an editorial that I wrote in the wake of this move called Chrysotunity in India Cash Crunch, in which I wrote, in India, they call cash gleaned from counter-economic activities black money. It's not known to the government, it's not stored in the banks, and it's not taxed. In other words, it's the would-be technocratic overlord's worst nightmare. It's impossible to know the size of this black money pool, can we call it something cooler, like Freedom Funds or something? But it has been estimated to be as much as 20% of the size of the total Indian economy. Now with the vast bulk of those freely gotten gains being brought back into the banking system, or exchanged with a valid form of government identification, it will come back under the purview of Big Brother and his friend Uncle Taxman. The evil empire is striking back against the ag agorist counter-economy. And if some of those new, new words are new to you, like agorism or counter-economy or um, counter-economic activity, then I suggest you go back and listen to or re-listen to the uh, previous edition of this podcast on agorism. But uh, yes, suffice it to say, this is at least partially about bringing some of these funds back under the purview of Uncle Taxman. And in fact, exactly as I wrote about this week in the International Forecaster, I'll put the link in the show notes so you can go check it out. That's exactly what is happening. The Indian government, especially the, uh, the income tax department, is now heavily scrutinizing the records, the banking records, not just since November 9th when the changeover took place, but from April of last year to November to study the patterns of people's uh, deposits and see if there's a difference and how much of a difference and in analyzing it to try to see if people are have too much money, if it's suspicious activity that's going on as they start to turn in their, their uh, freely gotten gains. But tax is one issue, clearly, that this is about, but I don't think it's the primary issue. And one reason why I don't think that's the case is because actually only 6% of the black money floating around in the informal economy is actually held in cash, which of course makes perfect sense. If you are trying to evade the clutches of the government and the tax man, then you probably wouldn't keep this in cash. You would store it, uh, store the, uh, the wealth uh, somewhere uh, a little more permanent, as it were. Uh, a lot of it is invested in real estate, or you use it to buy gold, or uh, or even to store in foreign bank accounts, but probably not floating around as 500 or 1,000 rupee notes. Some of it is, but uh, only 6 to 10% is the estimate of the black money is actually held in cash. So clearly black money is not the primary reason that uh, this is being done. And in fact, if this is all just a tax cash grab, it's probably, well, it's demonstrably, at least in certain areas of India, having the exact opposite effect. In fact, the uh, governor of uh, Tamil Nadu just came out uh, to admit that, in fact, their tax revenue in, in that particular region of India is decreasing 
Because of the economic slowdown that's occurring as a result of this demonetization, fewer people are purchasing because fewer people have the cash to purchase. Um, so it's actually causing decreasing tax revenues. Um, that's an interesting take in all this. And again, that points to the fact that it can't just be the, the tax money itself that is the primary motive for this. So let's turn to a different source, a, a non-mainstream source, to find out some of the other reasons why this is really going on. We'll turn to a very important article called Death by Demonetization by Satya Sagar. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes as always so you can follow along. But he identifies at least four four large uh, areas of reasons why this was uh, done. And uh, reading from the article, one, rebooting troubled Indian banks. The increase in deposits of banks expected due to the crackdown on black money is expected to help banks get into better health, lower interest rates, and enable them to resume lending to Indian businesses again. In other words, demonetization is a way of saving many Indian public sector banks while also providing corporates with fresh loans, a very dubious strategy given those in power seem to have no real will to recover money from their defaulter cronies. Two, increasing the government's cash flow. Assuming that a significant portion of the cash held in high denomination notes is black money, it's argued that a significant percentage of this black money will not come back at all due to fear of penalties and prosecution and become useless. This will reduce the overall liability of the Reserve Bank of India by anywhere between 2 and 4 lakh crore rupees, 2 to 4 trillion rupees, providing a windfall to the state exchequer. 3. Boosting the digital cash economy. In one sweeping stroke, the Modi regime is about to force millions of Indians into the waiting arms of around a dozen private payment banks given licenses to operate by the Reserve Bank of India in 2015. Among the big non-banking sector corporate grabbing, uh, corporates grabbing these licenses are Reliance Industries, Airtel, Aditya Birla Group, Vodafone, Paytm, and Tech Mahindra. Four, cutting political opponents to size. Given the widespread use of black money and cash by all political parties during uh, elections, demonetization is calculated to hit the BJP's, the ruling party's, opponents in the upcoming Punjab and Uttar Pradesh elections. Well, those are four, four very interesting areas to explore, and certainly one of them is exceptionally interesting. So let's explore that a little bit more. Earlier this week, I had the chance to talk to Satya Sagar about his article and about the real reason for the demonetization. The real reason seems to be that the Indian uh, uh, economy at the moment, you know, in the last 20 years, the biggest growing, the fastest growing companies worldwide and in India also with telecom companies. If I was an entrepreneur who had the vision to see telecom as a big business 25 years ago, I would be multi-multi-billionaire today. Now, digital economy is the way to go globally. I mean, everywhere there's a huge shift happening to digital transactions. You know, e-wallets and payment gateways and payment banks. You know, software is taking over the world, literally speaking, everywhere. So here there are a bunch of players who are looking ahead and saying, hey, I want to be there in five years' time. So I'm going to invest in a way and set up all the uh, right investments so that I'm positioned to take advantage of the boom in the digital economy. The only problem for them was that there was no boom. So they got the government to produce a boom. So it's literally like that. It's like reminds me of some of the stories from the Latin American dictatorships back in the 60s and 70s 
where a dictator would sort of ban people from wearing slippers because he owned a shoe factory. Hmm. So at least one of the main reasons for this demonetization is giving a boost to the underutilized cashless payment infrastructure of the Indian economy? If so, then mission accomplished. These scenes are the new norm in India. Long, snaking queues at every bank and ATM. Why? Well, that's because India has a cash crunch. Hello. Change for 2,000 rupees? It's the same story everywhere. It's hard to break a 2,000 rupee bill, about $30. And it's been like this for three weeks when the government suddenly pulled all 500 and 1,000 rupee notes from the economy and replaced them with new 500 and 2,000 rupee notes. The government says it's trying to eliminate illegal, untaxed money, but banks can hardly keep up. There is one clear winner, though. I'm at a New Delhi street market and there are a lot of roadside stalls and vendors here that sell all kinds of street food. And obviously these are places that are struggling because uh, all of their transactions are in cash and there's less cash in the market. So this store behind me has started using something called Paytm. Paytm is the top Indian digital wallet company and it seems to be everywhere on TV ads and billboards. Founder and CEO Vijay Shekhar Sharma says this is boom time for digital money in India. When we started, we were about 150 million users. And now we are 160 million users in less than three weeks. So 10 million customers got signed up in less than three weeks. That's a 7% jump in 21 days. And guess what? The growth isn't limited to the big cities. Four out of every seven Paytm users are in rural India, the places that a majority of India's population calls home. Perhaps that's why Sharma's startup is valued at more than $5 billion. We have an opportunity for converting India into a first world of digital payments. Sharma says teaching Indians how to get online remains a hurdle, which is why he employs a small army of 10,000 to sign people up. Back at Delhi's street food stalls, I learned that my local vendor started using Paytm just three weeks ago, the day after India's move to ban old notes. Already, he's making one-fifth of his revenue from digital money. It's one small step for local businesses, but perhaps a much bigger leap for India's digital future. Ravi Agrawal, CNN, New Delhi. All right, so evidently the cashless payment systems of India are getting a big boost as a result, a direct result of this this demonetization. And so here's the real billion rupee question. Well, who is behind this? And unfortunately, it doesn't really take much scratching at all to discover it's the usual cast of characters who are very intimately associated with this maneuver. Um, firstly, as I noted in that Chrysotunity article that we referenced earlier, quote, for the first clue on that trail, who is behind this, just follow Bill Gates. He just happened to be in India this week addressing Prime Minister Modi and his cabinet. According to the Big Brother Corporation, BBC, he told them, The bold move to demonetize high-value denominations is an important step to move away from a shadow economy to an even more transparent economy. In the billionaire eugenicist's opinion, this is an opportunity for India to embrace the fintech revolution and become a world leader in micromanaging the tax cattle. 
All of the pieces are coming together, he told the Indian Prime Minister. I think in the next several years, India will become the most digitized economy, not just by size, but by percentage as well, end quote. Oh, yay. <laughs> but, uh, well, okay, so Bill Gates just happened to be visiting the country shortly after the demonetization and praising this chance to embrace this wonderful fintech revolution and all of these new cashless payment technologies that India is going to use to leapfrog right over the whole card payment thing and right into the cashless uh, society. Oh, it'll be great. But can we find a more direct causal connection between the usual cast of critters and this demonetization in particular? Not just a coincidental meeting between Bill Gates and uh, the Indian Prime Minister on the week of the demonetization? Well, yes. Yes, we can. And in order to do that, let's turn to the blog of the economic journalist Norbert Herring, uh, who wrote on New Year's Day of 2017 a very important article that I'll direct your attention to called A Well-Kept Open Secret. Washington is behind India's brutal experiment of abolishing most cash. Quote, U.S. President Barack Obama has declared the strategic partnership with India a priority of his foreign policy. China needs to be reined in. In the context of this partnership, the U.S. government's development agency, USAID, has negotiated cooperation agreements with the Indian Ministry of Finance. One of these has the declared goal to push back the use of cash in favor of digital payments in India and globally. Not even four weeks before this assault on Indians, USAID had announced the establishment of Catalyst, Inclusive Cashless Payment Partnership, with the goal of effecting a quantum leap in cashless payments in India. The press statement of October 14th says that Catalyst marks the next phase of partnership between USAID and the Ministry of Finance to facilitate universal financial inclusion. The statement does not show up in the list of press statements on the website of USAID anymore. Not even filtering statements with the word India would bring it up. To find it, you seem to have to know it exists or stumble upon it in a web search. Indeed, this and other statements, which seemed rather boring before, have become a lot more interesting and revealing after November 8th, after the demonetization. Reading the statements with hindsight, it becomes obvious that Catalyst and the partnership of USAID and the Indian Ministry of Finance, from which Catalyst originated, are little more than fronts which were used to be able to prepare the assault on all Indians using cash without arousing undue suspicion. Even the name Catalyst sounds a lot more ominous once you know what happened on November 9th. Well, earlier this month, uh, Mr. Herring appeared on the Scott Horton show to discuss the USAID connection to this demonetization scheme. All right. Well, we know that it wasn't the people of India who decided through their democracy that this was a grand experiment they wanted to enter into. So who did it to them? Well, it is it is a mix. What is uh, what is clear and, and can be can be read if you search the Internet, although nobody talks about it in India. They make it seem like it was Prime Minister Modi and he had his extravagant idea and did it. But there was a partnership be between USAID and the Indian Finance Ministry and a couple of other institutions who all have an interest in pushing back cash, uh, which had exactly the goal. And uh, in September, only 
four weeks before uh, that grant scheme was uh, announced. Uh, only four weeks before that, they put it to a new level, as they said in a press statement with an institution called Catalyst, uh, which uh, had exactly that goal, and USAID paid for it. So uh, it's clear that uh, that's uh, the official U.S. government development agency. So it's clear that Washington is involved and that that goes even further back. And USAID is part of an initiative called Better Than Cash Alliance, where they are together with the, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Visa MasterCard, who have an obvious interest, uh, the Ford Foundation and other such foundations. And since 2012, they have been working internationally uh, toward abolishing cash. So it's like the the payment providers who have almost uh, an international monopoly, the the U.S. payment providers, uh, together with USAID and uh, the IT groups like Microsoft, uh, also with an obvious interest, who are working on abolishing cash and uh, and these institution, institutions have been in a partnership with the Indian Finance Ministry uh, to work toward that. So uh, I can't point to uh, a piece of paper that says uh, from Washington to India you do that now, but it's very clear that Washington was involved much more than is admitted or talked about. Amazing. I have to say, it really is just like one of my New World Order conspiracy theories circa 1994, where they abolish, they create these cashless societies where everybody has to spend, at least with their smart card or with their thumbprint, and every transaction is monitored by the central authority. And here, here they're implementing this experiment on, again, this... This massive society, one-seventh of the world's population, but also a very poor one and a very, very cash-based one. As you say, they're not – it's sort of like um, – you know, yeah, Marx said he expected Western Europe to go to communism first, that it would be like a final stage thing, whereas Russia went from an agrarian society straight to communism. <laughs> it's It's sort of like that where it's just – it's such a huge shock. I mean I don't know how many people are going to starve because of this, but it's – it's going to be. It already must be a tragedy taking place. Just there. let me quote somebody to back it up. What you said about the experiment. This is Jonathan Adelton, uh, U.S. aid mission director in India, uh, U.S. ambassador. He said when this catalyst institution was created a month before the whole thing happens, and I quote. India is at the forefront of global efforts to digitize economies and create new economic opportunities that extend to -to hard-to-reach populations. Catalyst will support these efforts by focusing on the challenging on the challenge of making everyday purchases cashless. So he talks of global efforts to digitize economies, and India is at the forefront. So it's clear that they regard India as the guinea pig for these efforts and and also as a message because it was so disastrous for for everybody who didn't have 
access the digital payments and the whole world took notice so everybody has to be nervous now i mean you and i have cards but in in other countries like bangladesh or you name it uh, developing and um, and such countries people are going to think traders uh, are going to think oh maybe i better get that card readers in case i have the same idea and so even if uh, if it was terrible for the people it has worked tremendously well for the digital payment industry oh that's right usaid right there in the thick of it funding and creating this catalyst program in conjunction with the indian ministry of finance to boost the cashless payment infrastructure in the Indian economy just four weeks before the Indian government launched their surprise demonetization scheme. I think we don't have to speculate too hard about a direct connection between those two events. But as bad as all of this is, as bad as all of the crony connections are, for example, between the major payment systems that were granted licenses to set up their digital cashless payment grids in the Indian economy and suddenly have a boon of customers as a result of the Indian government's and their, their cronies' actions. And as devastating as this has been for a lot of the people, some of the poorest people on the planet who make their living in that Indian informal economy that is screeching to a halt as the lifeblood of that economy is yanked out as a result of this demonetization, as bad as all of that is, it gets even worse. I have a smartphone. I have several things on this. I have my wallet. I do my internet banking. And I have a UPI, that's the Unified Payment Interface. But very shortly, all of us on smartphones will be able to do all Aadhaar-enabled payment system with this very, very small little uh, instrument which can be put in here on all Android phones. You can, do your, you can do your thumb impression here and transact all Aadhaar-enabled payments as well. So what will happen is that every single individual in India, every single individual in India who will have a smartphone will become a walking ATM, will become a walking ATM. And each one of you can do transactions for many other people who may not have a phone. Every single individual in India who has a smartphone will be a walking ATM? Indeed, that's Amitabh Kant, who is the head of the Indian government-run think tank, the National Institution for Transforming India. And this walking ATM idea appears to be one of his talking points these days, as biometricupdate.com, yes, that is a real website, reported on January 20th, India working to replace cash with biometric e-payment. The chief executive of India's leading economic development agency told attendees at World Economic Forum in Davos that the country could introduce biometric payments within three years, thereby eliminating the need for cash and typical electronic payment methods, including automated teller machines along with debit and credit cards. Amitabh Kant, National Institute for Transforming India, was quoted in a CNN news affiliate report as saying that such now commonplace e-payment method methods may be totally redundant by 2020. 
According to Kant, thanks to the wide development of Aadhaar, in the near future all Indians will simply need to use a biometric identifier such as a thumbprint or eye scan to make routine payments. Aradhati Bhattacharya, chair and managing director of the State Bank of India, said in the same report that moving towards a biometric e-payment scheme is something that's eminently doable due to India's wide adoption of Aadhaar. Aadhaar is the 12-digit unique identification number issued by the Indian government to every individual resident of India. The Aadhaar project aims to provide a single unique identifier which captures all the demographic and biometric details of every Indian resident. Currently, Aadhaar has issued an, over 900 million Aadhaar numbers and has enrolled approximately 850 million people, with a goal of ultimately enrolling 1.28 billion people. End quote. Well, as longtime listeners of the Corbett Report will not need to be told, the Aadhaar project has been ongoing for a number of years now and is a very ambitious attempt to fingerprint and iris scan the entire population of India. India fingerprinting, iris scanning over 1 billion people. This is Behind the Headlines on Global Research TV. The Indian government is ramping up efforts to fingerprint and iris scan the entirety of its 1.2 billion citizens in an ambitious scheme to issue national ID cards with biometric details. The plan has so far already enrolled 110 million people and issued 60 million numbers, with the aim of enrolling 200 million by this March and 600 million by 2014. The project stems from two separate overlapping schemes. The unique identification program, aimed at providing India's 200 million poorest citizens with fail-safe access to the country's welfare system, and the National Population Register, aimed at providing a national ID card to help identify and deport undocumented immigrants. Last month, the UID plan hit a roadblock when a parliamentary committee issued a blistering attack on the scheme, calling it directionless and full of uncertainty while critics note the danger of the project in the absence of coherent privacy laws. Just how the government will use the information, or even who will have access to it, has yet to be properly determined. The government collecting iris scans and fingerprints of every single one of its 1.28 billion Indian residents? As James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com is wont to say, what could go right? Uh, indeed. Um, well... I don't think I need to elaborate in too great detail to people who have heard this podcast before why this is such an Orwellian panoptic nightmare. But the real question, I suppose, is, is there any reason to connect this Aadhaar project, this biometric uh, details uh, identification project, specifically to this demonetization? And again, the answer is yes. And again, taking this from the Norbert Herring article that we referred to earlier, uh, we remember the USAID Catalyst program that was announced just four weeks before the demonetization began, which USAID was partnering with the Ministry of Finance to create this program that would foster the Indian cashless payment system. Well, as Herring notes in his article, the director of project incubation for Catalyst is a man named Alok Gupta. And Gupta is... As the Economic Times notes, he was a member of the original Unique Identification Authority of India team that developed and implemented Aadhaar. Yes, direct question connection. The, the same people who helped develop this biometric 
tracking and scanning scheme are the people working with USAID on this project that was announced just weeks before the demonetization to boost the cashless economy, which the demonetization has evidently and demonstrably done. So it all comes together, and I hope you're seeing the picture that is coming into view right now. Demonetization, cashless society, biometrics, the total big brother surveillance of every transaction going on in the economy tied down not just to some random details of you, but to your fingerprints and iris scans. You, every single thing that you do, everywhere you go, everyone you interact with being tracked and controlled and databased and surveilled by a central government authority. I don't think, again, I need to elaborate why this is so nightmarish, but <laughs> I would like to think I don't have to elaborate why this is not just a problem for the people of India, although it is obviously that. But this is very soon coming to a country near you. Where could we have that? It must be here. Shopping for snacks in Stockholm has got a lot simpler in recent years. My pin code, and then it's done. In part, that's thanks to cashless payment systems, like the one developed by entrepreneur Peter Friedel. Cash presents a lot of problems for society as a whole. I mean, a lot of people actually want to use cash, but in Sweden, it's definitely lower and lower and lower. While an estimated 55% of US consumer payments are made with cash, in Sweden, that number is now down to 41%. We are connected to the cashier system. We're there. But we also have the, uh, the network because we're sitting on the mobile data network. So we're up in a store in a second. Fidel's firm, Seamless, now operates in 30 different countries. But here in internet-enabled Sweden, it's just one of several companies competing to replace cash. Japan is getting ready to host the 2020 Olympics. No doubt there's going to be a whole lot of people traveling that way for this event. And the Japanese government wants to be ready for all of these tourists coming to visit their country. So the government is preparing what they're calling an experiment. And what they plan to do is replace your method of payment using your fingertips. They want to use your biometric fingerprints as a tourist. When you come into the country, you will register, get provide your credit card, passport information, your tax information, and you will have the convenience of not having to pull out your wallet, they say, when you go to make payments. The future of payment, it's very important that we move away from solid cash and we move more towards different ways of paying. Everyone wants an easier lifestyle when it comes to payment. I think Visa are just trying to make the world more fluid in their transactions, trying to connect a lot of people around the world and can be done instantaneously. Hi there, Garth Peterson demonstrating Visa's Matron card standard here at Visa's uh, Booth Mobile World Congress. Going to do a transaction, chip enabled card that has my fingerprint contained on the card. I'm going to select the language of English. I'm going to place my finger on the reader. It's recognized my finger and it's approved the transaction. I remove the card. Do you need more examples of how the cashless biometric control grid is being slotted into place everywhere in the world right now? 
Unfortunately, there are no shortage of examples, and if you do want some more, I will direct you uh, in the direction of an open source investigation that we conducted on the Corbett Report last year. The Corbett Report community came together to create the War on Cash, a country-by-country -country guide, literally dozens and dozens of different countries with different examples in each of those countries of cashless payment systems and cashless ideas that are being promoted promoted by governments or instituted or even mandated by governments in various locales. Um, so that was a very important open source investigation that we conducted and was only possible because there are Corbett Report members from all around the world that were able to contribute their own country's uh, examples. And since that was a very important and very successful open source investigation, next week I'm planning to launch a similar investigation, but this time on the biometric side of it biometric ID systems and biometric ideas that are coming into place in different countries. One very interesting example of that very recently announced just in the past week or so that Australia is going to be uh, starting to phase out passport controls at certain uh, airports they're going to be using. You guessed it, biometric details instead, so you won't need to actually see, a, go to a person and actually hand your passport to them. Oh, that's, that's, so, that's so last, that's so 20th century. Now you'll just be able to scan your eyes or your fingerprints and walk on through. Um, yay. Um, anyway, so we will be doing that next week, but I think we have to identify the root of this problem so that we know how to avoid this trap that we are being led into. And I think it's quite obvious. What is the root of this, for example, in the Indian demonetization chain, the demonetization leading to the boosting of the cashless economy, leading to the biometric cashless e-payment system? Well, clearly the demonetization itself is the catalyst, as USAID terms it, for this, this brave new world that they're trying to launch us into. If governments can just snap their fingers and make these colorful slips of paper into uh, toilet paper just by virtue of their legal tender laws and their ability to revoke that legal tender status, then, then they can take it away with the snap of a finger or they can monetize a different uh, unit with the snap of a finger. They can force people onto cashless payments altogether. They can just say, no more cash, and it will be so. Uh, it would create total chaos. It would be absolute havoc, but it can legally be done. So uh, that power exists. But should that power exist? Should central banks and the governments uh, that they're in bed with, should they have monopoly control over the money supply? Hmm. Well, don't take it from this uh, grizzled, hardened anarchist. Take it from even more mainstream sources, which are now starting to ask this very simple but very logical question. In fact, we can take this from swarajyamag.com out of India itself, which asked this question on Boxing Day, December 26, 2016. Big Q. Why should the Reserve Bank of India, RBI, or any central bank have a monopoly on money? Quote, but the real question to ask of Urjit Patil, the governor of the RBI, the Reserve Bank of India, and the government that appointed him, is not whether demonetization was a good idea or whether it, had been, whether it had been implemented badly, but whether either government or the central bank should have this monopoly power at all. That Patil and Modi government are being attacked both by left and right for demonetization leads us to a larger and more basic question. Could demonetization have happened if the Indian state did not have a monopoly in central banking and there were several money issuers vying for the citizen's custom? The answer is probably no, for it is only monopoly that assures central banks this kind of power. 
If India had another currency issuer, the RBI could not have demonetized the currency in one go. It would have had to announce a plan and take the bad money out in stages. But the central bank's monopoly is really a consequence of the state's monopoly on lawmaking and power. This is why states, despite being at odds with their central banks on the short-term direction of monetary policy, are equally keen to let them retain their monop money monopoly. In the US, a private player launched a gold-based currency called eGold, but when it grew big enough, the powers that be had it wound up. Launched in 1996, eGold, founded by Douglas Jackson, allowed account holders to make cash transfers to other eGold account holders through its website. At its zenith, eGold was said to be handling more than $2 billion worth of annual transactions. But governments can't stand a rival who challenges their own right to mint currency, and so in 2009, eGold was shut down, ostensibly because it did not have a license to transfer money. The Patriot Act, enacted after 9-11, gave the US government power to do this. The 21st century will challenge the idea of the state and its monopoly powers, but step one in that promise, process is whether central banks should have a monopoly on money. The answer is no. Competition will be good, even in the business of creating money and managing its ebbs and flows. So, let's leave that article there. But obviously, the question of creating money is much, much bigger one, and one that is obviously beyond the purviews of this particular investigation on the Corporate Report podcast. But we have talked about it in various ways in the past, so I will throw some links into some valuable resources, some audio and video files for you to explore on the issue of money and how it can and should, and in some cases already is being issued uh, by different bodies, by different community organizations and others. Um, now, I will humbly also direct you to an article that I wrote for the International Forecaster last year called How to Beat the Banksters at Their Own Game, talking about, again, about some of the ideas that are already being utilized at various community levels, already in existence. There are cryptocurrencies, alternative currencies, competing currencies, there's ideas for self-issued credit and other zany ideas. How dare you think about that? But if we don't start taking advantage of the ideas that are already on the table, then we will be stumbling blindly or otherwise, willingly at any rate, into the trap that they are setting for us. The cashless biometric control grid that is already largely in place. They just need to flip the switch and get us all trapped. Well, not if we can help it. And that's the point. So I will direct you once again to those resources I'm throwing in the show notes for this episode at CorbettReport.com as always. And as always, I want to thank you for joining me for this episode. I'm looking forward to talking to you again very soon. The Federal Reserve, the heart of the American banking system. For over 100 years, it has operated in the shadows, controlling America's money supply in total secrecy. So all that information is available uh, in our commercial paper. And program. who got the money? Hundreds and hundreds of banks. Any bank or that has uh, access to the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve's discount. Can tell us who they are. No. Until now. 100 years ago, in 1913, the Fed was created. Fractional reserve banking. The legal authority to do it. Takeover of monetary policy. Are conducted by the Federal Reserve Banks. They are banks. There is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. 
Century of Enslavement, the history of the Federal Reserve. Watch the documentary for free at corporatereport.com slash Federal Reserve and purchase a copy on DVD to help support The Corbett Report today. It's recognised my finger and it's approved the transaction. I remove the card.